it really be a totally a podcast if it didn't start with the beer opening? <laughs> no. But there's no. I already. There's we're no already halfway through a beer. <clears throat> All right. Well. Um, hey. Uh, so I'm Will. I'm Tony. Yeah, we're a Tildophilia podcast. Back um, again. Yeah, resurrected. Reason. <laughs> Have you ever seen The Mummy? No. Me neither. Okay, uh, <laughs> so we know we've been silent for a little bit. Uh, there's been a lot going on, both personally. Tony got a PhD. I got a dog. It's basically the same thing. Yeah. Um, also, with this like crazy stuff going on in the world with the pandemic and all the... You know, protests and all these things have been happening. And tough Tony to keep I, track of. Tough to keep track. And Tony and I have been kind of hunkered down, but we've been we've been reading a lot and listening and watching a lot of things. And we got really excited about um, restarting in a way that was able allowed us to share information with all of you. And we decided that we might gather up a couple stories every two weeks or so, a um, couple each, and you know, give you all a quick kind of tasty bite of what they're about. Totally. Yeah, and one of the things we love to do, I think one of the things we love about the podcast is, you know, the deep dives we've been able to do, um, which have been super fun. But but also, you know, we realized, as Will said, that like getting getting our heads around sort of what's going on right now and is it takes a lot of effort. And we want to sort of be able to provide that as a service to the people who are loyal to this podcast and who listen to us. So what you can expect, I think, from these episodes we're making, which we're calling The Current. <laughs> Great name. Yeah. Uh, who came up with that? Uh, I think it's probably you. I thought we just had Olympia pulled out of a hat. Right, yeah, yeah. it might have been the dog. Anyway, we're calling this thing The Current, and you can expect kind of short excerpts um, and summaries, or like synopses, of things we have read in the last couple of weeks. And or watched, or watched, listened read, to. Watched, read, listened to. Tripped over. Yeah, fell into. Um, <laughs> so that you might, you know, A, kind of keep your finger on the pulse of um, issues that are relevant to the stuff we kind of cover in this podcast, and also allow you to learn more on your own time and provide resources for you to do that. Yeah, so every, for every episode, we'll have a couple stories each, and we'll make sure that all that information, all the links to whatever it is, is on our website. So you can always go back, and if you don't believe us, actually read the thing for yourself and form your own opinions, which you should definitely do. Would recommend. Yeah, so uh, I think we're going to just try to hit it here and see how it goes. Yeah, let's jump right in. Okay. Great. A few weeks ago, Tony and I had the opportunity to watch Patagonia's newest film, Public Trust. The film traces the history of public lands in America, highlighting the unique value they provide while simultaneously outlining various threats to specific places and to the system as a whole. The film follows three conflicts. The reduction of Bears Ears National Monument in Utah, a potential mine near Minnesota's Boundary Waters, and oil drilling in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Narrated by a rugged Montana journalist, Hal, the film makes clear the ways in which extractive industries fund politicians in order to dismantle protections on public lands. Last week, we hosted a screening and discussion of the film for a group of our listeners. In our discussion following the film, we covered several topics, including the way in which the film represents indigenous groups. In particular, both the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and Bears Ears National Monument have significant support from the local native peoples, who are advocating fiercely for their permanent protection. However, we wondered about other cases where the goals of conservation and the goals of indigenous people don't always match up. Do Native Americans prefer their land be protected under the federal government? Or are they simply trying to leverage a system that has historically stolen their land and relegated them to the sidelines? Another topic explored during our discussion was the intended audience of the film. In an election year where partisanship is at an all-time high, it seemed clear that Patagonia was trying to reach outside its typical bubble to access other public land users, such as hunters and ranchers. While this seems like a good strategy, the group mused about the ability to sway those who see the land as a source of income rather than a unique American privilege. 
Overall, we appreciated the way public trust tells the story of public lands in America and gives context to the current moment we find ourselves in. The final message of the film is clear. Voting this fall is the most direct way we can impact the trajectory of public lands in America. If you want to watch the film for yourself, Patagonia is releasing it for free on YouTube on September 25th. watching that film and having the chance to chat about it with some folks was really cool yeah and you know thinking about public land uh last spring we saw ski resorts who all lease forest service land get shut down and uh i think we've both been wondering what's going to happen this winter and you did a little research about that right yeah cooler days and earlier sunsets have us getting stoked on winter and the upcoming ski season but this year as with most everything else things are shaping up to be pretty different COVID-19 has forced ski resorts to carefully strategize ways to keep skiers coming while avoiding the inevitable nightmare that would ensue if cases of the virus are tied to a resort. One way that some resorts are tackling this problem is by implementing a reservation system. The idea is to control the numbers of people on the mountain on a given day, all skiers will need to reserve a spot ahead of time before they arrive. This limited capacity, paired with memories of last ski season's crazy overcrowding at some ski resorts, has some season pass holders concerned that the large financial investment they made in purchasing a ski pass, some of which can cost upwards of $1,000 for the season, will be wasted when they find that they can't secure a spot to ski on a busy winter weekend. Vale Resorts, the largest ski resort company in the world, was the first organization to publicly announce this strategy. To quell the concerns of some season pass holders, Vail has chosen to limit all skiing at all of their resorts to only pass holders before December 8th. In addition to unlimited weekly reservations, Vail is also allowing pass holders to lock in up to seven days of reservations at any point of the season. If a pass holder can't secure a reservation for a day of their choosing, they're eligible for a refund on their pass price for that day. Other safety precautions in their plan include mandatory face coverings, physical distancing during ski lessons and at-on-mountain restaurants, and limitations on the people on each chairlift to only those in a single party. Other ski resorts, like Mount Baker, a small ski area in northern Washington state, are taking a slightly different strategy. It's, well, I'll just read what's on their website. Here it goes. Under current requirements, when the season begins, you will not need a reservation to ride the lifts at Mount Baker. There may be a few, or many days, that there are no restrictions on the number of people we can have skiing or riding the mountain. There also may be a few, or many days, that there are restrictions on the number of people we can have skiing or riding the mountain. If and only if restrictions on the number of people skiing or riding are needed for a given day, we will implement an online reservation system for skiing or riding access. Again, there may be a few or many days this season where there is no reservation system. There also may be a few or many days this season where there is a reservation system. That's a lot to take in. Basically, Mount Baker is hedging their bets that they won't have to institute a reservation system some of the time. This reflects the vast uncertainty that this ski season brings, especially for the people who make a living getting people together to go skiing. For some skiers, the high cost of ski passes and the uncertainty brought by the reservation system is enough to send them into the backcountry looking to get their downhill fix. The appeal of exploring vast off-piste playgrounds has grown exponentially in recent years, but enjoying the backcountry safely takes some time to master. 
Being informed about and ready to respond to rapidly changing avalanche conditions is a critical skill to safely navigate backcountry ski terrain, and many new skiers may unknowingly enter dangerous terrain without the proper training. This increase in new users, combined with the already burgeoning interest in backcountry skiing, may lead to crowded trailheads and an increased burden on search and rescue operations. Whatever this winter brings, it's sure to be a test of seasons to come. Time will tell if reservation systems at ski resorts work as designed. If so, they might become more permanent features of the resort experience, and might even help to curb some of the overcrowding issues that certain resorts have been plagued with. To read more on this, including a letter from Vial Resort CEO Rob Katz, check out our website. There may be few or many days that I kind of don't want to leave my house this winter because of all the craziness going on, but I do hope we get to get some skiing in. I, I, I'm i not sure what it's going to look like, but I'm sure we'll find a way to get out on the snow. Me too. And yeah, thinking about um, people really heavily accessing recreation in general, you were able to, to sort of engage with a pretty interesting article that got published in the Seattle Times, right? That's right, yeah. Um, got to talk with uh, Linda Mapes. Um, cool. Let's hear it. Yeah. With the pandemic making most summer city activities like concerts and farmers markets prohibitive, people all over the country are spending unprecedented amount of time outdoors. Many of them are first-time campers or hikers, and there have been reports across the West of overcrowding and destruction of public lands. On September 10th, an article appeared on the front page of the Seattle Times website with the title, Recreation Becomes Recreation as Careless Outdoor Adventures Turn Destructive Spark Wildfires. The journalist Linda Mapes describes the way in which Washington citizens have literally fled to the hills, trampling vegetation, requiring costly search and rescue missions, and starting destructive and deadly wildfires. We caught up with Linda to ask her a few questions about this pattern of activity and what the potential solutions are. Linda, in your article, uh, you quoted representatives from several public land agencies, including DNR and the state parks. And uh, we wanted to know what the biggest complaint you heard from those land managers was. So it was basically people very badly misbehaving in the public lands. Because of COVID, a lot of people can't, rec- can't take the vacation they thought they were going to take or, you know, they're sick of being stuck at home. So they're going out into the public lands, sometimes for the first time camping or hiking. Well, this is a good thing. That's something that everyone has been uh, wanting to see more people out recreating outdoors. And it's a healthy thing to do. It connects them with nature, but but too many people are taking uh, their chaos with them. And, and some of what's going on out there is just piggish behavior. I mean, it's just disgusting. People leaving bags of dog waste by the trail, people leaving toilet paper by the trail, people cutting trails through fragile vegetation, people camping wherever they feel like it, people even leaving their waste in dumpsters because they just couldn't be bothered to go to the bathroom in a, in a perfectly good bathroom at a campground with a flush toilet. I mean, it's, it's just plain disgusting bad behavior and it's not okay. And if we've gotten to a point where we can't say that to each other, uh, we're really in trouble. I mean, this, this is basic good manners. You don't, you don't go over to your friend's house and leave your pizza box in the middle of the rug and tip over a beer on the couch and walk away. <laughs> I mean, this is no different. This this is nature's house and it, and it belongs to all of us. And all of our public land staff right now are so stretched, so thin. Their, their budgets have been slashed. Their staff have been slashed. And here they are dealing with more people than ever and, and people making a mess. It's, it's just unacceptable. Right. I mean, so you just touched on uh, one of my other questions, which was, you know, do these land managers have the resources to address these problems? And it sounds like the answer is no, but did you hear from them um, any 
you know, concrete suggestions about how they're attempting to manage this, this new problem? Well, I mean, they're just desperately trying to do the best they can. And frankly, these are problems they should not have to deal with. I mean, their work should not be cleaning up um, human waste from dumpsters. It should not be picking up toilet paper by the trail and trying to, you know, uh, bring back to life trampled fragile vegetation because people just felt like cutting their own trail i mean that 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 is not their that should not be their job it's it's just inappropriate uh that they're even being asked to deal with this kind of misbehavior and and it's even worse than that i mean some of what i've heard about is 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 intentional cruelty to animals and harassment of wildlife i mean it's it's beyond the pale frankly but I guess I'm wondering, you mentioned it, it's exciting to see people going out there, especially for the first time. So how do we balance inclusivity and welcoming more people while also passing on that ethos and that education to ensure the spaces are cared for? People need to behave themselves. Very simple. I mean, it's wonderful to see all these new people out in the woods. It delights me, frankly, to see families with kids and all kinds of people out there. This is great. They just need to behave themselves, as we all have had to always behave ourselves in the woods. And if you didn't learn this as a kid, it's time to learn it now. This really isn't complicated. This is basic manners and basic etiquette. And it's a good time, if you don't know it, to learn it. And if you haven't taught it, uh, teach it. It's, it's, um, this, this is one of those classic teachable moments. And I, and I think that people are just a little too careful with one another if they think, oh, well, you know, people just, you can't tell them they won't learn. Well, why not? <laughs> I think people can learn. I think people are basically good and basically smart. And if, if they haven't learned this yet, now's a good time. And um, it's, it's all hands on deck out there, really. I mean, the woods are dry. It's uh, climate change is real. Nature is fragile. There are too many of us. Uh, we need to treat these places with respect and one another with respect. This is, you don't, you don't treat the next person coming to your campsite the way people have been treating them. Are you suggesting that, you know, people who have already been using these trails and are familiar with the 10 essentials and lead no trace, that it's part of our responsibility to interact with these new users and, and pass on that knowledge um, in a sort of informal setting? A hundred percent, of course, absolutely. Of course, certainly. I mean, assume that, you know, someone who just put down that, that bag of dog shit in front of you right on the trail, for whatever reason, needs a nudge. Hey, don't leave that there, please. Or, you know, whatever's appropriate to say. I mean, you know, it, it's a dispersed situation. You don't necessarily see these things happen in front of you. But if you have a chance to interact with someone, do so. Absolutely. I mean, we're here for one another. You would think you wouldn't have to ask for some of these things. But if you do, you do. <laughs> so let's do it. That's why I wrote the story, honestly, was, was to call this out. And I'm not the first. I've seen other um, stories about this and, and the idea that recreationists become recreation spelled with a W was, was, was deliberately said by me to catch people's attention and say, look, you know, this is not okay. Uh, following up on that, I mean, do you think this newfound intensity is an anomaly or are we gonna continue to see an increase in users, you know, even, even past this current time that we're experiencing? That's a good question. You know, maybe people going out there are going to discover something that uh, they really love and that they'll come back to. I hope so. And, and pass it on to their kids and their neighbors. I, I mean, the first thing that we need to do for more people to preserve nature is for people to care about it and beyond abstract, abstractly. So, yes, I hope what this kindles in people is a love for the outdoors and a curiosity about nature and natural history, what are they seeing, you know, to learn their native plants, to learn about wildlife, to learn about 
these beautiful natural areas that they're in. They're not just scenery. These are, these are systems of living things. And I, I hope that um, people come back and back again, but I hope they do it with, with respect and, um, and care. You know, it's it's tough because it's really, really important that we take care of these natural spaces that we're really fortunate to have access to. But on the other hand, we also really want to make sure that we're not excluding people and that we're not thinking that only we have the rule book. And here's the rule book. Welcome to our outside. You know, it's everybody's outside. So interesting conversation. Yeah, no, I think that's a good uh, way of summarizing it. I mean, and this summer, actually, I feel like the outdoor community has been really grappling with that and this whole, uh, you know, concept of representation because of the protests and the, the the way that BLM has like elevated itself to like kind of national level. And you actually have like our final story about that, right? Totally. Yeah, let's get into it. As the United States undergoes a reckoning with how to address the crisis of systemic racism, corporations have faced particularly strong scrutiny. As powerful entities, companies have the potential to move the needle on large-scale social change by taking concrete action to dismantle systems of oppression. Despite this, many influential companies have chosen to stay silent, even as the tragic murders of black Americans at the hands of police demand action. Up until last week, one of those companies was the outdoor retailer Patagonia. Patagonia posted a message on their Instagram page acknowledging their silence. Here's an excerpt. Patagonia has struggled to find the right words to respond to the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, and Dijon Kizzy, and far too many others. We've also struggled to express our support for the racial justice movement sweeping the country. The few words we have conveyed fell short and failed to comprehend the pain of our colleagues of color and partners in the outdoor community. The Black Lives Matter movement has forced a reckoning of the deep racial injustice around us and laid bare our complicity. We are a white-led outdoor company reliant on recreation on stolen native lands that are not yet safe for all. Recent months have revealed how much more we need to do to live up to our values as an activist company. The Post goes on to offer an apology for the harm that they have caused in not using their platform to precipitate real change. They also commit to, quote, listen to and support our black, indigenous, and colleagues of color first, and commit to becoming a more inclusive and equitable company, and to, quote, amplify the true leaders on justice and equity in the environmental movement and outdoor industry. This post is a great example of one of the harder steps in creating a new, more equitable society, acknowledging that we haven't done enough. We encourage Patagonia and everyone else to keep working towards this goal. We also encourage you to keep these companies accountable to their actions and support those making change. You can find the full text of the post on our website or on Instagram at Patagonia. Uh, yeah, I don't know how little old people are supposed to keep big organizations accountable, but I think we all have to do our part and, uh, you know, make sure that these companies follow up on what they say because a lot of, like Patagonia says, talk is cheap, right? Okay, so uh, that is The Current. Really hope you liked the first episode. Uh, if you want to read or listen or watch any of those, all of the links can be found on our website uh, in the show notes section, and we'll see you again in a few weeks. Thanks. Adios. Adios.